Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 273. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a winter wonderland outside, little Whitburn, next to the coast there, northeast coast of England. It is, ho ho, actually it's not as bad as inland in England and it's just been, we've had some kind of nice showers, nice short showers there. And what the nice thing is, I kind of swapped jobs a couple of, about two years ago there now. I would have been travelling like an hour inland and it would have been a nightmare, but now it's just like, Couple of minutes along the road, and be little smart shoes and shirt and tie. <laughs> Tell you what's coming in day sure. We have the Hugo Review of Fact article by Andy Thomaswick, the Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Next up is the main fiction, and it's part two of the Jack Vance, the Moon Moth. Then right at the end, we have a little promo for Rom Pod, a little romantic fiction podcast that you might be interested in. That is today's show. Now, before there is only a few days left before we have Spider Robinson, How to Write Science Fiction. So, if you want to come along to that, it is eight o'clock UK time, which kind of puts it like dinner time ish sometime around there in America and a little bit on the other side for Australia and everything like that. But it would be lovely to see you there. And like I say, Spider's going to whip out his guitar. <laughs> so, that's what's coming up. We'll dig straight in there with Andy Thomaswick and his Hugo review of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Andy, sir. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hugo review. This time I'll be covering Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire by J.K. Rowling, the winner for 2001. First, let me apologize for being away for so long. Major life changes have been partially to blame, but also I admittedly didn't realize that the Goblet of Fire is actually the fourth book in the Harry Potter series rather than the first one. While the prequels are all relatively short, I did feel the need to read all of them beforehand to get a better picture of the series overall. That took me a bit longer than expected, but I should be back on a normal schedule from here on out. Thanks for the patience, and I hope you didn't mind the wait. On to the book itself. As mentioned above, it's right smack in the middle of the world-famous Harry Potter series, which is arguably the most popular young adult book series of the last 20 years. The story centers around the titular Harry Potter and his two best friends, Ron Weasley and Hermione Granger, as they are run through a set of trials and tribulations at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. I'm pretty sure the general premise of the series is widely understood enough by the literary crowd listening to this podcast that further details of the world of Harry Potter are not needed here. The specific details of this particular book fit well in the overarching storyline of the series, However, they don't stand out in terms of writing style, content, or plot devices more so than the rest of the stories in the series, which is a problem I will go into more detail on later. 
It is worth pointing out, though, that Miss Rowling does bring the wizarding world to life as vividly as in the rest of the Harry Potter stories. I personally feel that how you approach the book probably depends on your age. The Harry Potter series itself gets darker and more violent as it goes, and its characters matured from young innocent children to essentially adults battling a great evil that's overtaking their world. In fact, the Goblet of Fire exemplifies the darker tone the series takes, and depicts the first death of an important character in the series. It's almost like Miss Rowling wrote the first book for kids of a certain age when she started, and kept pace with her psychological development as she wrote further books in the series. The only problem with this technique is if you fall outside of the age cohort of the children who are now young adults that the book series was written for. Coming at it for the first time as an adult, the series, and the Goblet of Fire in particular, takes on completely different dimensions that might be lost on less experienced readers. Admittedly, I did read the first Harry Potter book, The Sorcerer's Stone, or The Philosopher's Stone for Our Neighbors Across the Pond, for a class in college, so I was a bit younger then, but even in 19, the moral lessons strung through the series are as plain as day. They might not be as noticeable at the age of 10, as they were couched in a set of entertaining stories with a diverse set of characters, interesting plot twists, and imaginative landscapes, but at its heart, the entire series is an ethical compass for growing up. The problem with this is that the moral lessons sort of limit all the books in the series in terms of the philosophical or psychological ground they are willing to cover. Don't go into Harry Potter expecting the shock value of American Gods, the wit of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, or the inspirational ideas of Spin. This is the growing up story of a generation that just happens to be told as the story of a boy wizard. It is not a story to expand your horizons or make you think differently about the world, especially as an adult. My only problem with the series is the part of storytelling that it's missing is a large part of why I like reading science fiction and fantasy books in the first place. My other problem with this selection for the award is no fault of the book itself. I realize that almost this whole time I've been talking about the entire Harry Potter series in general rather than just the Goblet of Fire in particular, but I admit I'm having a hard time understanding why only the Goblet of Fire won the Hugo Award in the first place. It was as well written and entertaining, sure, but not noticeably more so than the rest of the books in the series. In fact, the prequel to The Goblet of Fire, The Prisoner of Azkaban, is the only other Harry Potter book that was even nominated for a Hugo Award. That's not really so much a problem, I guess, but for some reason I have a hard time differentiating The Goblet of Fire from the rest of the series. As such, I'm going to give an overall verdict on the entire series as a whole, instead of the book individually. All of the books in the series are well-written, entertaining, worthwhile, and certainly deserving of the Hugo Award one of its constituent parts received. Despite being billed as a series of young adult books, it's well worth a read as an adult, especially if you have relatively young children. My only regret is that my generation is not the one that grew up with this series to serve as its moral compass. That's it for this edition of the Hugo Review. I should once again be back to a normal schedule when I cover A Deepness in the Sky by Werner Vinge, the winner for 2000. Thanks everyone for listening, and please make sure not to practice any magic in front of the muggles. There you go, Handy. Thank you so much. It's lovely to have you back on board. Next up is part two of The Moon Moth by Jack Vance. Like you see, we played last week part one, and this week is part two. Very proud to have a Jack Vance story. Again, big shout out to Adam for snaff snaffling that one. Well done, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Moon Moth, part two by Jack Vance. Previously on Starship Sofa, The Moon Moth by Jack Vance, part one.
Edward Thistle is the consular representative to Serene, a world where the inhabitants communicate in song, and the instrument you use has as much meaning as the words you speak. Thistle is ordered by his patron, Castel Cromartin, to apprehend the notorious criminal Haxo Angmark. However, the message comes too late, and Angmark manages to escape into the populace, all of whom, including Thistle, wear masks to denote their prestige in the community. Now Thistle has to figure out where Angmark has hidden himself before his patron recalls him to the home planets, and he has absolutely no information to go on. And now, The Moon Moth by Jack Vance, Part 2. Thistle stood at a loss. The forest goblin had disappeared. Haxo Angmark walked at liberty in Fan, and Thistle had failed the urgent instructions of Castel Cromartin. Behind him sounded the casual notes of a keeve. Sir Moonmoth Thistle, you stand engrossed in thought. Thistle turned to find beside him a cave owl in a somber cloak of black and gray. Thistle recognized the mask which symbolized erudition and patient exploration of abstract ideas. Matthew Kershaw had worn it on the occasion of their meeting a week before. "'Good morning, Sir Kershaw,' muttered Thistle. "'And how are the studies coming? Have you mastered the C-sharp plus scale on the gamma pard? As I recall, you were finding those inverse intervals puzzling.' I've worked on them, said Thistle in a gloomy voice. However, since I'll probably be recalled to Polypolis, it may all be time wasted. Hey, what's this? Thistle explained the situation in regard to Haxo Angmark. Kershaw nodded gravely. I recall Angmark, not a gracious personality, but an excellent musician. With quick fingers and a real talent for new instruments... Thoughtfully, he twisted the goatee of his cave owl mask. What are your plans? They're non-existent, said Thistle, playing a doleful phrase on the keeve. I haven't any idea what masks he'll be wearing, and if I don't know what he looks like, how can I find him? Kershaw tugged at his goatee. In the old days, he favored the exocambian cycle. And I believe he used an entire set of nether denizens. Now, of course, his tastes may have changed. Exactly, Thistle complained. He might be twenty feet away, and I'd never know it. He glanced bitterly across the esplanade toward the maskmaker's shop. No one will tell me anything. I doubt if they care that a murderer is walking their docks. Quite correct. Kershaw agreed. Cyrene's standards are different from ours. They have no sense of responsibility, declared Thistle. I doubt if they'd throw a rope to a drowning man. It's true that they dislike interference, Kershaw agreed. They emphasize individual responsibility and self-sufficiency. Interesting, said Thistle but I'm still in the dark about Angmark. Kershaw surveyed him gravely. And should you locate Angmark, what will you do then? I'll carry out the orders of my superior, said Thistle, 
doggedly. Hangmark is a dangerous man, mused Kershaw. He's got a number of advantages over you. I can't take that into account. It's my duty to send him back to Polypolis. He's probably safe, since I haven't the remotest idea how to find him. Kershaw reflected. An outworlder can't hide behind a mask, not from the Sirenes at least. There are four of us here at Fan, Rolver, Wellibus, you and me. If another outworlder tries to set up housekeeping, the news will get around in short order. What if he heads for Zundar? Kershaw shrugged. I doubt if he'd dare. On the other hand, Kershaw paused, then, noting Thistle's sudden inattention, turned to follow Thistle's gaze. A man in a forest goblin mask came swaggering toward them along the esplanade. Kershaw laid a restraining hand on Thistle's arm, but Thistle stepped out into the path of the forest goblin, his borrowed gun ready. Haxo Angmark, he cried. Don't make a move or I'll kill you. You're under arrest. Are you sure this is Angmark? asked Kershaw in a worried voice. I'll find out, said Thistle. Angmark, turn around. Hold up your hands. The forest goblin stood rigid with surprise and puzzlement. He reached to his Zashinko, played an interrogatory arpeggio, and sang, Why do you molest me, moon moth? Kershaw stepped forward and played a placatory phrase on his slobo. I fear that a case of confused identity exists, Sir Forest Goblin. Sir Moon Moth seeks an outworlder in a Forest Goblin mask. The Forest Goblin's music became irritated, and he suddenly switched to his stomach. He asserts that I am an outworlder. Let him prove his case, or he has my retaliation to face. Kershaw glanced in embarrassment around the crowd which had gathered, and once more struck up an ingratiating melody. I am positive that Sir Moon Moth, the forest goblin interrupted with a fanfare of Skaranyi tones, let him demonstrate his case or prepare for the flow of blood. Thistle said, very well, I'll prove my case. He stepped forward, grasped the forest goblin's mask. Let's see your face. That'll demonstrate your identity. The forest goblin sprang back in amazement. The crowd gasped, then set up an ominous strumming and toning of various instruments. The forest goblin reached the nape of his neck, jerked the cord to his dual gong, and with his other hand snatched forth his scimitar. Kershaw stepped forward, playing the slobo with great agitation. Thistle, now abashed, moved aside, conscious of the ugly sound of the crowd. Kershaw sang explanations and apologies. The forest goblin answered. Kershaw spoke over his shoulder to Thistle. Run for it, or you'll be killed. Hurry! Thistle hesitated. The forest goblin put up his hand to thrust Kershaw aside. Run! screamed Kershaw. To Wellibus's office! Lock yourself in! Thistle took to his heels. The forest goblin pursued him a few yards, then stamped his feet, sent after him a set of raucous and derisive blasts of the hand bugle, while the crowd produced a contemptuous counterpoint of clacking heimerkins. There was no further pursuit. Instead of taking refuge in the import-export office, Thistle turned aside, 
and after cautious reconnaissance proceeded to the dock where his houseboat was moored. The hour was not far short of dusk when he finally returned aboard. Toby and Rex squatted on the forward deck, surrounded by the provisions they had brought back, reed baskets of fruit and cereal, blue glass jugs containing wine, oil, and pungent sap, three young pigs and a wicker pen. They were cracking nuts between their teeth, spitting the shells over the side. They looked up at Thistle, and it seemed that they rose to their feet with a new casualness. Toby muttered something under his breath. Rex smothered a chuckle. Thistle clacked his heimerkin angrily. He sang, Take the boat off shore. Tonight we remain at Fan. In the privacy of his cabin, he removed the moon moth, stared into a mirror at his almost unfamiliar features. He picked up the moon moth, examined the detested lineaments, the furry gray skin, the blue spines, the ridiculous lace flaps. Hardly a dignified presence for the consular representative of the home planets. If, in fact, he still held the position when Cromartin learned of Angmark's winning free. Thistle flung himself into a chair, stared moodily into space. Today, he'd suffered a series of setbacks. But he wasn't defeated yet. Not by any means. Tomorrow, he'd visit Matthew Kershaw. They'd discuss how best to locate Angmark. As Kershaw had pointed out, another outworld establishment could not be camouflaged. Haxo Angmark's identity would soon become evident. Also, tomorrow, he must procure another mask. Nothing extreme or vainglorious, but a mask which expressed a modicum of dignity and self-respect. At this moment, one of the slaves tapped on the door panel, and Thistle hastily pulled the hated moon moth back over his head. Early next morning, before the dawnlight had left the sky, the slaves sculled the houseboat back to that section of the docks set aside for the use of outworlders. Neither Rolver nor Wellibus nor Kershaw had yet arrived, and Thistle waited impatiently. An hour passed, and Wellibus brought his boat to the dock. Not wishing to speak to Wellibus, Thistle remained inside his cabin. A few moments later, Rolver's boat likewise pulled in alongside the dock. Through the window, Thistle saw Rolver, wearing his usual tarnbird, climb to the dock. Here, he was met by a man in a yellow-tufted sand-tiger mask, who played a formal accompaniment on his gomapard to whatever message he brought Rolver. Rolver seemed surprised and disturbed. After a moment's thought, he manipulated his own gomapard, and as he sang, he indicated Thistle's houseboat. Then, bowing, he went on his way. The man in the sand-tiger mask climbed with rather heavy dignity to the float and rapped on the bulwark of Thistle's houseboat. Thistle presented himself. Cyrene's etiquette did not demand that he invite a casual visitor aboard, so he merely struck an interrogation on his Zashinko. The sand-tiger played his gomapard and sang, Dawn over the bay of the fan is customarily a splendid occasion. The sky is white with yellow and green colors. When Mireille rises, the mists burn and writhe like flames. He who sings derives a greater enjoyment from the hour when the floating corpse of an outworlder does not appear to mar the serenity of the view. Thistle's Zashinko gave off a startled interrogation, almost of its own accord. The sand-tiger bowed with dignity. 
The singer acknowledges no peer in steadfastness of disposition. However, he does not care to be plagued by the antics of a dissatisfied ghost. He therefore has ordered his slaves to attach a thong to the ankle of the corpse. And while we have conversed, they have linked the corpse to the stern of your houseboat. You will wish to administer whatever rites are prescribed in the outworld. He who sings now wishes you a good morning and now departs. Thistle rushed to the stern of his houseboat. There, near naked and maskless, floated the body of a mature man, supported by air trapped in his pantaloons. Thistle studied the dead face, which seemed characterless and vapid, perhaps in direct consequence of the mask-wearing habit. The body appeared of medium stature and weight, and Thistle estimated the age as between forty-five and fifty. The hair was nondescript brown, the features bloated by the water. There was nothing to indicate how the man had died. This must be Haxo Angmark, thought Thistle. Who else could it be? Matthew Kershaw? Why not? Thistle asked himself uneasily. Rolver and Wellibus had already disembarked and gone about their business. He searched across the bay to locate Kershaw's houseboat and discovered it already tying up to the dock. Even as he watched, Kershaw jumped ashore, wearing his cave owl mask. He seemed in an abstracted mood, for he passed Thistle's houseboat without lifting his eyes from the dock. Thistle turned back to the corpse. Angmark, then, beyond a doubt. Had not three men disembarked from the houseboats of Rolver, Wellibus, and Kershaw, wearing masks characteristic of these men? Obviously the corpse of Angmark. The easy solution refused to sit quiet in Thistle's mind. Kershaw had pointed out that another outworlder would be quickly identified. How else could Angmark maintain himself unless he... Thistle brushed the thought aside. The corpse was obviously Angmark. And yet... Thistle summoned his slaves, gave orders that a suitable container be brought to the dock, that the corpse be transferred therein and conveyed to a suitable place of repose. The slaves showed no enthusiasm for the task, and Thistle was forced to thunder forcefully, if not skillfully, on the Heimerkin to emphasize his orders. He walked along the dock, turned up the esplanade, passed the office of Cornley Wellibus, and set out along the pleasant little lane to the landing field. When he arrived, he found that Rolver had not yet made an appearance. An overslave, given status by a yellow rosette on his black cloth mask, asked how he might be of service. Thistle stated that he wished to dispatch a message to Polypolis. There was no difficulty here, declared the slave. If Thistle would set forth his message in clear block print, it would be dispatched immediately. Thistle wrote, Outworlder found dead, possibly Angmark, age 48, medium physique, brown hair, other means of identification lacking, await acknowledgement and or instructions. He addressed the message to Castel Cromartin at Polypolis and handed it to the overslave. A moment later, he heard the characteristic sputter of transspace discharge. An hour passed. Rolver made no appearance. 
Thistle paced restlessly back and forth in front of the office. There was no telling how long he would have to wait. Transspace transmission time varied unpredictably. Sometimes the message snapped through in microseconds. Sometimes it wandered through unknowable regions for hours. And there were several authenticated examples of messages being received before they had been transmitted. Another half hour passed, and Rolver finally arrived, wearing his customary Tarnbird. Coincidentally, Thistle heard the hiss of the incoming message. Rolver seemed surprised to see Thistle. What brings you out so early? Thistle explained. It concerns the body which you referred to me this morning. I'm communicating with my superiors about it. Rolver raised his head and listened to the sound of the incoming message. You seem to be getting an answer. I'd better attend to it. Why bother? asked Thistle. Your slave seems efficient. It's my job, declared Rolver. I'm responsible for the accurate transmission and receipt of all spacegrams. I'll come with you, said Thistle. I've always wanted to watch the operation of the equipment. I'm afraid that's irregular, said Rolver. He went to the door, which led into the inner compartment. I'll have your message in a moment. Thistle protested, but Rolver ignored him and went into the inner office. Five minutes later, he reappeared, carrying a small yellow envelope. Not... Too good news, he announced, with unconvincing commiseration. Thistle glumly opened the envelope. The message read, Body not Angmark. Angmark has black hair. Why did you not meet landing? Serious infraction, highly dissatisfied. Return to Polypolis next opportunity. Castel Cromartin. Thistle put the message in his pocket. Incidentally, may I inquire the color of your hair? Rolver played a surprised little trill in his keeve. I'm quite blonde. Why do you ask? Mere curiosity. Rolver played another run on the keeve. Now I understand, my dear fellow, what a suspicious nature you have. Look. He turned and parted the folds of his mask at the nape of his neck. Thistle saw that Rolver was blonde indeed. Are you reassured? asked Rolver jocularly. Oh, indeed, said Thistle. Incidentally, have you another mask you could lend me? I'm sick of this moon moth. I'm afraid not, said Rolver. But you need merely go into a mask maker's shop and make a selection. Yes, of course, said Thistle. He took his leave of Rolver and returned along the trail to Fan. Passing Wellibus's office, he hesitated, then turned in. Today Wellibus wore a dazzling confection of green glass prisms and silver beads, a mask Thistle had never seen before. Wellibus greeted him cautiously to the accompaniment of a keeve. Good morning, Sir Moonmoth. I won't take too much of your time, said Thistle, but I have a rather personal question to put to you. What color is your hair? Wellibus hesitated. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Did a fraction of a second, then turned his back, lifted the flap of his mask. Thistle saw heavy black ringlets. Does that answer your question? inquired Wellibus. Completely, said Thistle. He crossed the esplanade, went out on the dock to Kershaw's houseboat. Kershaw greeted him without enthusiasm and invited him aboard with a resigned wave of the hand. A question I'd like to ask, said Thistle. What color is your hair? Kershaw laughed woefully. What little remains is black? Why do you ask? Curiosity. Come, come, said Kershaw with an unaccustomed bluffness. There's more to it than that. Thistle, feeling the need of counsel, admitted as much. Here's the situation. A dead outworlder was found in the harbor this morning. His hair was brown. I'm not entirely certain, but the chances are, let me see, yes, two out of three, that Angmark's hair is black. Kershaw pulled at the cave owl's goatee. How do you arrive at that probability? The information came to me through Rolver's hands. He has blonde hair. If Angmark has assumed Rolver's identity, he would naturally alter the information which came to me this morning. Both you and Wellibus admit to black hair. Hmm, said Kershaw. Let me see if I follow your line of reasoning. You feel that Haxo Angmark has either killed Rolver, Wellibus, or myself and assumed the dead man's identity, right? Thistle looked at him in surprise. You yourself emphasized that Angmark could not set up another outworld establishment without revealing himself. Don't you remember? Oh, certainly. To continue, Rolver delivered a message to you, stating that Angmark was dark and announced himself to be blonde. Yes. Can you verify this? I, I mean, for the old Rolver? No, said Kershaw sadly. I've never seen Rolver nor Wellibus without their masks. If Rolver is not Angmark, Thistle mused, if Angmark indeed has black hair, then both you and Wellibus come under suspicion. Very interesting, said Kershaw. He examined Thistle warily. For that matter, you yourself might be Angmark. What color is your hair? Brown, said Thistle curtly. He lifted the gray fur of the moon moth mask at the back of his head. But you might be deceiving me as to the text of the message, Kershaw put forward. I'm not, said Thistle wearily. You can check with Rolver if you care to. Kershaw shook his head. Unnecessary, I believe you. 
But another matter, what of voices? You've heard all of us before and after Angmark arrived. Isn't there some indication there? No, I'm so alert for any evidence of change that you all sound rather different. And the masks muffle your voices. Kershaw tugged the goatee. I don't see any immediate solution to the problem. He chuckled. In any event, need there be. Before Angmark's advent, there were Rolver, Wellibus, Kershaw, and Thistle. Now, for all practical purposes, there are still Rolver, Wellibus, Kershaw, and Thistle. Who is to say that the new member may not be an improvement upon the old? An interesting thought, agreed Thistle. But it so happens that I have a personal interest in identifying Angmark. My career is at stake. I see, murmured Kershaw. The situation then becomes an issue between yourself and Angmark. You won't help me? Not actively. I've become pervaded with Cyrene's individualism. I think you'll find that Rolvor and Wellibus will respond similarly, he sighed. All of us have been here too long. Thistle stood deep in thought. Kershaw waited patiently a moment, then said, Do you have any further questions? No, said Thistle. I have merely a favor to ask you. I'll oblige if I possibly can, Kershaw replied courteously. Give me, or lend me, one of your slaves for a week or two. Kershaw played an exclamation of amusement on the ganga. I hardly like to part with my slaves. They know me and my ways. As soon as I catch Angmark, you'll have him back. Very well, said Kershaw. He rattled a summons on his heimerkin, and a slave appeared. Anthony, sang Kershaw, you are to go with Sir Thistle and serve him for a short period. The slave bowed without pleasure. Thistle took Anthony to his houseboat and questioned him at length, noting certain of the responses upon a chart. He then enjoined Anthony to say nothing of what had passed, and consigned him to the care of Toby and Rex. He gave further instructions to move the houseboat away from the dock and allow no one aboard until his return. He set forth once more along the way to the landing field and found Rolver at a lunch of spiced fish, shredded bark of the salad tree, and a bowl of native currants. Rolver clapped an order on the Heimerkin, and a slave set a place for a thistle. And how are the investigations proceeding? I'd hardly like to claim any progress, said Thistle. I assume that I can count on your help. Rolver laughed briefly. You have my good wishes. More concretely, said Thistle. I'd like to borrow a slave from you, temporarily. Rolver paused in his eating. Whatever for? I'd rather not explain, said Thistle, but you can be sure that I make no idle request. Without graciousness, Rolver summoned a slave and consigned him to Thistle's service. On the way back to his houseboat, Thistle stopped at Wellibus's office. Wellibus looked up from his work. Good afternoon, Sir Thistle. Thistle came directly to the point. 
Sir Wellibus, will you lend me a slave for a few days? Wellibus hesitated, then shrugged. Why not? He clacked his heimerkin. A slave appeared. Is he satisfactory, or would you prefer a young female? He chuckled, rather offensively to Thistle's way of thinking. He'll do very well. I'll return him in a few days. No hurry. Wellibus made an easy gesture and returned to his work. Thistle continued to his houseboat, where he separately interviewed each of his two new slaves and made notes upon his chart. Dusk came soft over the Titanic Ocean. Toby and Rex sculled the houseboat away from the dock, across the silken waters. Thistle sat on the deck listening to the sound of soft voices, the flutter and tinkle of musical instruments. Lights from the flashing houseboats glowed yellow and wan watermelon red. The shore was dark. The nightmen would presently come slinking to paw through refuse and stare jealously across the water. In nine days, the Buenaventura came past Serene on its regular schedule. Thistle had his orders to return to Polypolis. In nine days, could he locate Haxo Angmark? Nine days weren't too many, Thistle decided, but they might possibly be enough. Two days passed, and three, and four, and five. Every day, Thistle went ashore, and at least once a day visited Rolver, Wellibus, and Kershaw. Each reacted differently to his presence. Rolver was sardonic and irritable, Wellibus formal, and at least superficially affable. Kershaw mild and suave, but ostentatiously impersonal and detached in his conversation. Thistle remained equally bland to Rolver's dour jibes, Wellibus's jocundity, Kershaw's withdrawal, and every day, returning to his houseboat, he made marks on his chart. The sixth, the seventh, the eighth day came and passed. Rolver, with rather brutal directness, inquired if Thistle wished to arrange for passage on the Buenaventura. Thistle considered and said, Yes, you had better reserve passage for one. Back to the world of faces, shuddered Rolver. Faces! Everywhere, pallid, fish-eyed faces, mouths like pulp, noses knotted and punctured, flat, flabby faces. I don't think I could stand it after living here. Luckily, you haven't become a real Cyrenese. But I won't be going back, said Thistle. I thought you wanted me to reserve passage. I do. For Haxo Angmark. He'll be returning to Polypolis in the brig. Well, well, said Rolver. So you've picked him out. Of course, said Thistle. Haven't you? Rolver shrugged. He's either Wellibus or Kershaw. That's as close as I can make it. So long as he wears his mask and calls himself either Wellibus or Kershaw, it means nothing to me. Means a great deal to me, said Thistle. What time tomorrow does the lighter go up? 11.22 sharp. If Haxo Angmark's leaving, tell him to be on time. He'll be here, said Thistle. He made his usual call upon Wellibus and Kershaw, then, returning to his houseboat, put three final marks on his chart. The evidence was here, plain and convincing, not absolutely incontrovertible evidence, but enough to warrant a definite move. He checked over his gun. Tomorrow, the day of decision, he could afford no errors. The day dawned bright white, the sky like the inside of an oyster shell. Mireille rose through iridescent mists. Toby and Rex sculled the houseboat to the dock. The remaining three outworld houseboats floated somnolently on the slow swells. One boat Thistle watched in particular, 
that whose owner Haxo Angmark had killed and dropped into the harbor. This boat presently moved toward the shore, and Haxo Angmark himself stood on the front deck, wearing a mask Thistle had never seen before, a construction of scarlet feathers, black glass, and spiked green hair. Thistle was forced to admire his poise, a clever scheme, cleverly planned and executed, but marred by an insurmountable difficulty. Angmark returned within. The houseboat reached the dock. Slaves flung out mooring lines, lowered the gangplank. Thistle, his gun ready in the pocket flap of his robes, walked down the dock. When aboard, he pushed open the door to the saloon. The man at the table raised his red, black, and green mask in surprise. Thistle said, Angmark, please don't argue, or make any... Something hard and heavy tackled him from behind. He was flung to the floor. His gun rested expertly away. Behind him, the Heimerkin clattered. A voice sang, Bind the fool's arms. The man sitting at the table rose to his feet, removed the red, black, and green mask to reveal the black cloth of a slave. Thistle twisted his head. Over him stood Haxo Angmark, wearing a mask Thistle recognized as a dragon tamer, fabricated from black metal, with a knife-blade nose, socketed eyelids, and three crests running back over the scalp. The mask's expression was unreadable, but Angmark's voice was triumphant. I trapped you very easily. So you did, said Thistle. The slave finished knotting his wrists together. A clatter of Angmark's heimerkin sent him away. Get to your feet, said Angmark. Sit in that chair. What are we waiting for? inquired Thistle. Two of our fellows still remain out on the water. We won't need them for what I have in mind. Which is? You'll learn in due course, said Angmark. We have an hour or so on our hands. Thistle tested his bonds. They were undoubtedly secure. Angmark seated himself. How did you fix on me? I admit to being curious. Come, come, he chided as Thistle sat silently. Can't you recognize that I have defeated you? Don't make affairs unpleasant for yourself. Thistle shrugged. I operated on a basic principle. A man can mask his face, but he can't mask his personality. Aha, said Angmark. Interesting. Proceed. I borrowed a slave from you and the other two outworlders, and I questioned them carefully. What masks had their masters worn during the month before your arrival? I prepared a chart and plotted their responses. Rolver wore the Tarnbird about 80% of the time. The remaining 20% divided between the Sophist Abstraction and the Black Intricate. Wellibus had a taste for the heroes of the Can Dakan cycle. He wore the Chalicun, the Prince Intrepid, the Sea Vane most of the time. Six days out of eight. The other two days he wore his South Wind or his Gay Companion. Kershaw, more conservative, preferred the Cave Owl, the Star Wanderer, and two or three other masks he wore at odd intervals. As I say, I acquired this information from possibly its most accurate source, the slaves. My next step was to keep watch upon the three of you. Every day I noted what masks you wore and compared it with my chart. Rolver wore his Tarnbird six times, his Black Intricate twice. Kershaw wore his Cave Owl five times, his Star Wanderer once, his Kinkunks once, and his Ideal of Perfection once. Wellibus wore the Emerald Mountain twice, the Triple Phoenix three times, the Prince Intrepid once, and the Shark God twice. Angmark nodded thoughtfully. I see my error. 
I selected from Wellibus's masks, but to my own taste. And as you point out, I revealed myself. But only to you. He rose and went to the window. Kershaw and Rolver are now coming ashore. They'll soon be passed and about their business. Though I doubt if they'd interfere in any case. They've both become good Cyrenese. Thistle waited in silence. Ten minutes passed. Then Angmark reached to a shelf and picked up a knife. He looked at Thistle. Stand up. Thistle slowly rose to his feet. Angmark approached from the side, reached out, lifted the moon moth from Thistle's head. Thistle gasped and made a vain attempt to seize it. Too late, his face was bare and naked. Angmark turned away, removed his own mask, donned the moon moth. He struck a call on his heimerkin. Two slaves entered, stopped in shock at the sight of Thistle. Angmark played a brisk tattoo, saying, Carry this man up to the dock. Angmark, cried Thistle, I'm maskless. The slaves seized him, and in spite of Thistle's desperate struggles, conveyed him out on the deck, along the float and up on the dock. Angmark fixed a rope around Thistle's neck. He said, You are now Haxo Angmark, and I am Edward Thistle. Wellibus is dead. You shall soon be dead. I can handle your job without difficulty. I'll play musical instruments like a nightman and sing like a crow. I'll wear the moon moth till it rots and then I'll get another. The report will go to Polypolis. Haxo Angmark is dead. Everything will be serene. Thistle barely heard. You can't do this, he whispered. My mask. My face. A large woman in a blue and pink flower mask, walked down the dock. She saw Thistle and emitted a piercing shriek, flung herself prone on the dock. Come along, said Angmark brightly. He tugged at the rope and pulled Thistle down the dock. A man in a pirate captain mask coming up from his houseboat stood rigid in amazement. Angmark played the Zashinko and sang, Behold the notorious criminal Hexo Angmark! Through all the outer worlds his name is reviled. Now he is captured and led in shame to his death. Behold, Haxo Angmark. They turned into the esplanade. A child screamed in fright. A man called hoarsely. Thistle stumbled. Tears tumbled from his eyes. He could see only disorganized shapes and colors. Angmark's voice belled out richly. Everyone behold! The criminal of the outworlds, Haxo Angmark, approach and observe his execution. Thistle feebly cried out, I'm not Angmark, I'm Edward Thistle, he's Angmark. But no one listened to him. There were only cries of dismay, shock, disgust at the sight of his face. He called to Angmark, give me my mask, a slave cloth. Angmark sang jubilantly, in shame he lived. In maskless shame he dies. A forest goblin stood before Angmark. Moonmoth, we meet once more. Angmark sang. Stand aside, friend goblin, I must execute this criminal. In shame he lived. In shame he dies. A crowd had formed around the group. Masks stared in morbid titillation at Thistle. The forest goblin jerked the rope from Angmark's hand, threw it to the ground. The crowd roared, voices cried, No duel, no duel, execute the monster! A cloth was thrown over Thistle's head. Thistle awaited the thrust of a blade, but instead his bonds were cut. Hastily he adjusted the cloth, hiding his face, peering between the folds. Four men clutched Haxo Angmark.
The forest goblin confronted him, playing the Skaranyi. A week ago you reached to divest me of my mask. Now you have achieved your perverse aim. But he is a criminal, cried Angmark. He is notorious, infamous. What are his misdeeds? sang the forest goblin. He has murdered, betrayed, he has wrecked ships, he has tortured, blackmailed, robbed, sold children into slavery. He has... The forest goblin stopped him. Your religious differences are of no importance. We can vouch, however, for your present crimes. The hostler stepped forward. He sang fiercely. This insolent moon moth nine days ago sought to preempt my choicest mount. Another man pushed close. He wore a universal expert and sang, I am a master mask maker. I recognize this moon moth outworlder. Only recently he entered my shop and derided my skill. He deserves death. Death to the outworld monster, cried the crowd. A wave of men surged forward. Steel blades rose and fell. The deed was done. Thistle watched, unable to move. The forest goblin approached, and, playing the stimic, sang sternly, For you we have pity, but also contempt. A true man would never suffer such indignities. Thistle took a deep breath. He reached to his belt and found his zashinko. He sang, My friend, you malign me. Can you not appreciate true courage? Would you prefer to die in combat or walk maskless along the esplanade? The forest goblin sang, There is only one answer. First I would die in combat. I could not bear such shame. Thistle sang, I had such a choice. I could fight with my hands tied and so die. Or I could suffer shame and through this shame conquer my enemy. You admit that you lack sufficient strock to achieve this deed. I have proved myself a hero of bravery. I ask who here has courage to do what I have done. Courage? demanded the forest goblin. I fear nothing up to and beyond death at the hands of the nightmen. Then answer. The forest goblin stood back. He played his double commanthiel. Bravery indeed, if such were your motives. The hostler struck a series of subdued gum-apard chords and sang, Not a man among us would dare what this maskless man has done. The crowd muttered approval. The mask-maker approached Thistle, obsequiously stroking his double commanthal. Pray, Lord Hero, step into my nearby shop. Exchange this vile rag for a mask befitting your quality. Another mask-maker sang, Before you choose, Lord Hero, examine my magnificent creations. A man in a bright-sky bird-mask approached Thistle reverently. I have only just completed a sumptuous houseboat. Seventeen years of toil have gone into its fabrication. Grant me the good fortune of accepting and using this splendid craft. Aboard waiting to serve you are alert slaves and pleasant maidens. There is ample wine in storage and soft silken carpets on the decks. Thank you, said Thistle, striking the Zashinko with vigor and confidence. 
I accept with pleasure, but first a mask. The mask maker struck an interrogative trill on the gamapard. Would the Lord Hero consider a sea dragon conqueror beneath his dignity? By no means, said Thistle. I consider it suitable and satisfactory. We shall go now to examine it. There you go. Jack, thank you so much. And it was narrated by the one, the only, Josh Roseman. Josh, what can I say? Thank you very much. If you want to get more of Josh, Josh says he's got his secret Santa is up at Junestief over there. So I'll put a link on to that story as well. And you can go and have a listen to, or go and have a, a, a listen. And, you know, because Josh wrote it. Josh has turned out to be a fantastic little writer there as well. Josh, what can I say? Big hugs and good luck for 2013 with all your endeavours. Next, we're going to play a little promo, and it is called, the promos, the actual podcast is called Rompod, and it's like romantic fiction, which I think is a cracking idea. Everyone needs a little bit of love and tenderness in the world. And it's actually by Amanda McCall, and Amanda is Mrs. Simon Hildebrand's good, good wife. So uh, everyone knows Simon, who does the Gaming for Future, and has been uh, narrating on, bless him, he's been on every, I've splattered him on every show possible on the kind of District of Wonders. So if he's, I'll put a link on again, if you want to go over and listen to Rompod, like say, Romantic Fiction. What, 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 come on, man, it's just what we need, these cold dice, man. Hello, my name is Amanda McCall, and I am the host of a new romance podcast called Rompod. In our weekly show, we aim to bring you a variety of romance stories from genres including period, contemporary, fantasy, and everything in between. So, if you'd like to hear more, or perhaps even contribute a story or narration, check us out at rompod.com. And remember, whenever you can, share the love. There you go, Amanda. Well done. Keep that up. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. So that is today's show. Hope you enjoyed it. The day, or the you know, kind of put to bed a Jack Van story. How cool is that? Don't forget, if you want to, you know, support the good Starship sofa, that would be fantastic. You know, that would be lovely. Come over the front of the website. There is loads of ways. Just your hard cash would be fantastic. But if you want to come along and see Spider Robinson on the 26th of January, that would be fantastic as well. Do you know what I mean? Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.